is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show where I and my fellow geeks gather to talk about our favorite moments from our favorite things, the moments of truth that drive why we love the stories that are near and dear to our hearts. And today, we'll be discussing one of the great touchstones of all modern nerddom, J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy, The Lord of the Rings. I first encountered The Lord of the Rings when I was nine years old. A family friend noticed my early love for reading and gifted me with her 1965 Ballantine paperback editions with those iconic and trippy blue, purple, and red covers. A lot of the story went over my head when I first read it, but it still impacted me deeply, and I've since gone back to it three other times, enjoying it more every time that I do. It's hard to understate how influential this story has been for me and for many other enthusiasts like me. With me are three of my longtime compadres in all things geeky, heroic, and strange. Tolkien uber-enthusiast and Funkmeister General, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy. Fellow author and leader of men, Joe Pace. Good evening. And columnist and media maestro, Tom Hyspos. Thanks for having me aboard, Bill. Everyone, welcome. Chris, I know your love for Lord of the Rings runs really deep. You're the guy, frankly, who got me to start looking at Tolkien as more than a mere fantasy author and at Lord of the Rings as more than a mere swords and sorcery tale. So I'd love to start this off with you. What's, what's your moment of truth with all of this? Well, Bill, I, I've read The Lord of the Rings probably on the order of 20 times. First read it when I was about 11. Since the end of high school, I, I think I've read it about every year, every summer I reread it. It's enormously important to me. The effect that it has had on my life is incalculable. My moment of truth for this story, the moment that got me and that still gets me every time, that literally makes me cry, is uh, during the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, when after Theoden has died and Aemir has run amok on the battlefield, he pauses in battle and looks to the south. Um, can I read you a passage? Yeah, please do, yeah. So he rode to a green hillock, and there set his banner, and the white horse ran, rippling in the wind. Out of doubt, out of dark to the day's rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. To hope's end I rode, and hearts breaking. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. These staves he spoke, yet he laughed as he said them, for once more lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king the lord of a fell people. And lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. And then wonder took him, and a great joy, and he cast his sword up in the sunlight and sang as he caught it. And all eyes followed his gaze, and behold, upon the foremost ship a great standard broke, and the wind displayed it as she turned toward the Harland. There flowered a white tree, and that was for Gondor, but seven stars were about it, and a high crown above it, the signs of Elendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count, and the stars flamed in the sunlight, for they were wrought of gems by Arwen, daughter of Elrond, and the crown was bright in the morning, for it was wrought of mithril and gold. This moment is the absolute heart of the book. The Rohirrim have, have arrived to aid Gondor, and found the city already burning. And they ride out upon the field, and their king, Theoden, is killed. His nephew, Aemir, becomes king then. Aemir sort of just goes nuts and tears up the battlefield for a while, and, and the battle turns against them. And then suddenly, out of nothing, beyond hope, 
Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is arriving on these black ships, the, the ships of the enemy. And it's completely unexpected. It's completely undeserved even for the characters as they stand. Tolkien actually uh, coined a word to define this kind of moment. He called it eucatastrophe, a good catastrophe. <laughs> um, it, is, it is the turn within a story where out of evil comes a sudden shining good that gives the reader hope and moves the reader to tears. And I tell you, it never does less than that for me. I cry every time I read this passage. I, I cry a number of times for Lord of the Rings because I'm a huge sissy. No, no, it's okay. This... It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's okay to cry over the things that move you and the things you love. It really, really is. This moment is is everything. These you catastrophes, of course, are a big thing with Tolkien. You brought up The Hobbit. And, and of course, I started with The Hobbit when I was maybe eight. At the Battle of Five Armies, when the goblins arrive, the elves and the men and the dwarves are all about to fight each other. The goblins arrive, and it's a good thing. That is a you catastrophe because suddenly the good guys aren't fighting each other. They're fighting evil together, and it brings them together. The, these you catastrophes for Tolkien are, are the point of, of what he called fairy stories. Mm -hmm. Tolkien did believe that fairy stories should have a happy ending, but what he was looking for was that moment where grief and joy are mingled mm. and either of them or both of them are what make you cry. And this moment, oh, oh my God. Oh, I die every time. I just can't get enough of it. That's why yeah. I read it every year. <laughs> There's a moment for me a little bit like that during the Battle of Helm's Deep when our heroes have given all that they can give, right? And they've just fought their hardest now. Like, all right, well, now we're going to ride out. And we're going to take as many of them with us as they possibly can. And then, of course, the last possible moment, cavalry literally arrived, you know, and they, and they show up. And it's that great turn. And for me, one of the things I love about that, and we see these moments a couple of times in, in the whole story, is that it's not just, yay, more good guys showed up, and yay, you know, victory was snatched from the jaws of defeat. For me, it's always these moments of like, you know, you've got this massive conflict. You've got the story amidst a background of incredible gloom. And especially like for me as a kid, when I first read these stories, I had no visual reference to go with these. There was no animation movie yet. There was no, there were no movies yet. There, was, there wasn't even like the Michael Whelan body of artwork that did so much to, to sort of create that sort of common visual identity that goes with a lot of this. It was just a lot of, you know, those weird ass trippy book covers, <laughs> this, this sense of impending darkness. And to a young mind, you know, that was like, for me, I was like, well, all these good guys have so many reasons to run away and to be afraid. And when they had these moments where people show up when they don't have to show up, they, they didn't just deliver. Like they let you know, you are not alone. And so many times our heroes in the story, they have to go on on their own, but then eventually they find at the times that matter most, there's always somebody else that's there to help them. Like there's always somebody there to, to support them. And that really stuck with me in a big way with the story. Yes. And, and more than that, in Tolkien, things that go wrong so often turn out to be right. The entire story of The Hobbit is that just repeated. They don't really want Bilbo. They want a burglar. They get Bilbo. They meet the trolls, which is terrible. And yet they get Orcrist and Glamdring out of it. 
they can't make it over the mountains. They get you know dragged down into Goblin Town. That turns out to be a good thing. I got to say, does, the dungeon master of the Hobbit was a pushover. I mean, honestly, right. these guys suck. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this party really, they they, 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 they should never over. gotten out of level one, man. I mean, honestly, it was a Monty totally. Hall campaign. Yeah, absolutely, it was. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. But when it comes to Lord of the Rings, I mean, the other great catastrophe is the finale when at the cracks of doom, Frodo can't give up the ring. He has failed. He has lost. Everyone has lost. And Gollum saves the day by acting evil. That's perfect, though. That's perfect. I mean, that's that's exactly right. It's wonderful. That is Tolkien. That's why he's magnificent. But I mean, we do talk about Tolkien and, you know, it's frustrating in some ways because it's Manichaean in its construction, right? I mean, we talk about that it's it's very much framed in good versus evil and it's very binary. It's very black and white that you have very few characters who inhabit shades of gray. It's not George R. R. Martin, right? I mean, this is not one where everybody is in some shade of shadow. Everybody is either good or evil. And to have that moment that you mentioned at the Cracks of Doom where Frodo, who has been a, a good character, is clearly one of the good guys, acts in a way that the ring has corrupted him. And he has moved from the light into the dark. But that needs to happen in order for the denouement of the story to happen. That is the one moment where I think Tolkien moves from good to great, if you will. Well, okay, I, I'm down with you. I disagree to some extent with the black and white characterization because I think it's overstated in popular culture. I mean, yeah, the orcs are a little bit problematic. They all are evil and that's like a racial thing. And that's, that's pretty troubling in the modern world. But I mean, you know, a character like Bjorn is neutral. He's outside the struggle. Right? He's not he, he is. Although he does, he does, he does come to the battle of five, Ar- five armies. Right. But, okay. That's, that's fair. Or, Saruman, for that matter. Yeah, we're pretty is, clear that Saruman's gone, gone bad. He started good, but oh yeah, he has gone bad and doesn't take his chances to return to good. But in the Silmarillion, I believe it's, it's Manwe who says, yes, th- these things are evil. Things may be evil and yet be good to have been. Like Gollum. Like I mean, Gollum. Yeah, Gandalf I mean, tells us I that. He says, you know, realizing the... how outclassed I am here by the knowledge of this. I mean, you already I mean, that is like, all right, we're already yeah. gone to, you know, texts outside. All right. I think it's important everybody describes how they came into the whole thing. And if you want to get there by way of the Hobbit, certainly that's the way I came in. But like, you're into the Silmarillion already. Oh my God. I've never even touched that. Oh my well, Tom, God. to your point, Bill mentioned earlier the visual stylings and how we came to visualize these things. For me, we're talking Rankin Bass, and that mm. is point of entry for me. But that movie, you know, it, it will always be for me. I don't understand Legolas as a pretty boy. I mean, he looks like the, the Wood Elves from the Hobbit cartoon movie from, from the late 70s. And that, to me, is the visual Middle Earth that I inhabit. Uh, that's the Gandalf that I will always know is that Gandalf and the dwarves. That's why I, one of the reasons that the, the Hobbit movies were such a failure is that the dwarves were badasses. They're not badasses. They're, they're, they're not. They're not. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. They're not WWE fighters. These guys can barely get out of their own way. And Bilbo has to like cut them out of the spiders in Markwood and he's got to bail them out all the time and everything else. So among the other reasons that the, those movies – tried to take them one movie and make it three and everything else. But to get back to this issue of good versus evil, 
I don't have a problem with that. I mean, you're talking about a guy in Tolkien who inhabited a World War II environment where, you know, you could view the world through that lens and through that prism. And came from a, I mean, he was born in the Victorian area. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And it was, you were either, you were either a good boy or a bad boy, right? Yeah. And I mean, one of the fascinating things about the orcs is that, you know, you talk about that racial, I think the orcs are more of a class condemnation than a racial one. Some of the fascinating stuff with, with Lugbors and Shagrat and everything else is, is they represent the bureaucratic creep of uh, the Industrial Revolution and how it's changing London. You know, there's this resistance for Tolkien to be allegory, and I get it. But the Orcs and then later Saruman and the raising of the Shire and everything else, clearly it's anti-industrialism. Um, and oh, everything sure, else. Certainly, certainly. But, but all, all of that being said, to your point, you know, there's also resistance to trying to make... Tolkien into Lewis and make it Christian allegory. But it's really hard in the scene that you're describing not to have Return of the King be the Return of Christ. I mean, it's almost impossible not to see that be, you know, the king who hasn't been heard of in all this time and he comes back and it's the same standard, but it's been changed. It's not to have Aragorn be the uh, Messiah is hard not to countenance. Well, fair. Absolutely. We do know based on the appendices, that Aragorn spent many years in Gondor, serving in the army there. So it's not like they've never known him, it's just they, they don't know they know him. Tolkien himself said that the greatest eucatastrophe of the human story was the birth of Christ. Or the yeah. crucifixion of Christ, yeah. I, I, I also feel like I'm out of depth in my own conversation, like, wow, we, like, you know... I, you guys are going to laugh when you hear my moment. <laughs> well, well, you know. Th- th- Is it th- when they take the crops from Farmer Maggot? Because that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Cow tip and Farmer Maggot. <laughs> well, well, you know what, you know, Tom, that's, that's probably as good as prompt as any. So, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about what is your moment of truth? Because definitely you strike me as, and this sort of speaks to, I think, one of the glories of this whole thing is that it's this magnificent tale that provides an opportunity. You can get deep in the scholarship of it and really, really peel back the many layers. But it's also so big and broad, it allows almost anybody to come at it from any particular direction, really, really. Any, any perspective, I, I, any I mean, perspective yeah, is like valuable. The, on, the on-ramp Lord of the Rings is really, really broad and shallow, and, and anybody can come at it from anywhere. So, Tom, I'd love to hear, you know, what I is... love that on-ramp too because our on-ramp was the hobbit was the book you read to prove that you had just gotten off the scale with your reading ability in fifth grade okay (laughs) so like if you read the hobbit you were the master you know you were at the top level of reading and the teachers weren't going to bother you but you know it did a really interesting thing it's like once everybody got to the hobbit and they enjoyed it that led to the Lord of the Rings, and then all those kids became the Dungeons and Dragons kids. Indeed, so was, poor bastards. That was how it worked in our school system. So, uh, of course, you know, I, I did the Hobbit. I was like the second or third kid in our grade to you know, finish the Hobbit, and I went into the uh, Lord of the Rings. And you know, it was one of those things where you know, I've only gone through it a couple of times. But the most recent time I did it was with my kids because. I was convinced that they weren't going to get into it quickly enough. So, uh, you know, I did a read through with the kids, which was my most recent one. Trying to pass the geek them on in the best way I can. Hashtag father of the year. Come on now. (laughs) Totally. So, you know, we sit, that was like, you know, the daddy, uh, you know, around the fire kind of story. And we have a really crummy gas fireplace, which I need to remedy. But, you know, still, that was the thing. My moment of truth is right there at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, where the fellowship falls apart. And... 
I remember reading about it when I was a kid and I'm like, okay, so you know, clearly there's something going on. The ring's corrupting Boromir. There's all sorts of you know odd things going on. And you got Frodo just decides to do his own thing. He's, I'm, I'm bugging out. And I identified with that in so many different ways when I was growing up. Me and, and, and getting along with other kids at that point was not really a thing. And I was very much a loner. I, I read about it and I was like, you guys, you're all off strategy. You're all doing the wrong thing. Frodo's perfectly right to, you know, bug out and decide he's going to Mordor by himself. That was my reaction to it. My kids, on the other hand, had the complete opposite reaction. And they like, well, wait, what's going on? He's leaving all his friends. He's not going to be able to do this without his friends. And he, they were really freaking out when that happened. Especially, you know, Me too. The, the fellowship is falling apart here. That's kind of like their first Empire Strikes Back. And that's <laughs> what I found compelling about it. I, I love that about it because I, I love to see flaws in characters. I'd like to see stories where, where stuff like that can happen and it can just go off the rails and you don't know how it's going to come back together. So that was my moment of truth is seeing a story like that really for the first time that kind of threw things off and, and, and really made me question whether any of this stuff was ever going to happen, whether he's going to get that ring to the mountain or what. You know, I never knew. It was great. That was my moment right there. That's really cool. So I like uh, that. Yeah, so I have to ask, and this, this might just be jumping ahead a little bit, but Tom, I'm so fascinated by the fact that you, you shared that your kids' first experience of this was you were sharing it with them, which is super cool. I've never, the closest I came was I gave my son Connor the Hobbit. And I was like, hey, here's this thing, check this out. And he actually took it and he read it on his own and just sort of blasted through it. And I was really psyched that he did. And that kind of opened him up to a lot of reading, but I didn't actually share it with him. We didn't share the experience as unfolded, whereas you guys did it with your kids. Were there any other moments as you went through where the way you kind of remember reacting and the way your kids reacted maybe were a little bit different? I mean, that was the big one. There were a lot of similarities. Everybody gets excited about the battles and everything. You know, the one thing that I do remember is they kind of got bored, and I, I'm struggling to remember the character's name, Tom... Um, Bombadil. Bombadil, yeah. yeah. They got a little lost. They kind of didn't understand what was going on. and Nobody uh, does. Started to drag a little bit, and, like, you know, Jack, would, you know, my, who's my youngest, he just started to wander off during uh, a lot of that, but... It's just trash. <laughs> it's understandable. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it, but when I was a kid and I read it, it kept me riveted the whole time. Like, Bill, honestly, I think the better approach might have been to just give it to them. I guess the reason why I didn't trust it is because books tend to go and disappear up into their bedrooms and yeah. you never see the books ever again. You know, I'm not quite sure whether they finished it or not. It's not like I'm going to quiz them or anything. I just really want them to enjoy a lot of the same stuff that I enjoyed when I was their age. So, you know, I, I thought it was important to kind of share the moment and, and read it through with them. Yeah. I, Agreed. I, especially The Hobbit. That is just... I mean, well, it is literally a bedtime story. I mean, that's what it was written for. He wrote it for his son. Letters yeah, Home, and, right? I mean, Letters Home from World War One. And so I think that is the right way to share it. That's what I did. I, I read The Hobbit to my boys. And we spent the afternoon today playing D&D. &D. <laughs> there you go. I, I remember when Connor read The Hobbit, you know, he just sort of took it and then and just sort of disappeared up in his room. And I wasn't quite sure if he was reading it or not. I didn't want to pressure him too much about it because I was like, man, that's... 
I remember just thinking when you're a parent, you start focusing on like how much you want to guide your children, but also you don't want to just like completely smother them and that sort of thing. And I'm like, man, I just hope he geeks out about this the way I did. It would be just one-tenth a degree. It'd be so great. Um, you would be able to relate over it so much. And I remember I gave him like a week. I checked up on the mic. I'm like, hey, so how's the hobby going? And he goes, yeah, I got like, you know, 50 pages in and kind of got bored and, 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 and sort of put it down. And I was like a silent tear for a track of my cheese. Oh, I'm like, oh man, my, my heart's breaking. But I didn't really say anything. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's cool. You know, if you, you know, would you like me to take it back? And he goes, no, no, it's okay. I'll hang on to it. And I just sort of, okay, just give him time. Two or three weeks later, we had this standing policy in our house. You have an allowance or you can earn money to buy things, but we never made them pay for their own books. Where I was like, if you want to get a book, that's on mom and dad always, you know, and if you want to go to Barnes and Noble, pick up some books always, that's, that's on us. We went to the store and Connor just was like, you know, which way to the young adults section or whatever. And he just sort of went off on his own. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. What, what's this? You know, he, he actually picked up a whole bunch of Percy Jackson novels. I'm like, oh, really? You're into this? And he goes, well, you know, I finished The Hobbit. really, really enjoyed it. And I just wanted to pick up some other things that are kind of like it. Whoa, you know? And it's one of those things where then he became this voracious reader of all different kinds of fantasy. And it was really cool. Like he blasted through like Aragon. He blasted through all Harry Potter. He started picking up graphic novels. He read Bone like three times. Like he just picked all this really great stuff. And I was so grateful that for him, like The Hobbit was that keystone book that really just sort of turned him on in the reading. But also he discovered this love for heroic fiction, heroic fantasy. And it was really kind of a cool thing. And of course, Chris, I mean, you know, Tom, your point. Yeah, kid followed the same path. <laughs> plays D&D with his friends, runs his own campaign, you know, has played with us. Yeah. And so those things are all kind of connected. So it was, it was neat to see him make the same progression that I made 30 years before. It's not that different. Bill, you did not point him toward Lord of the Rings at that point, no? No, I, no, I didn't. Uh, well, That's wise. I, That's a great decision. Yay for you. Yeah, I mean, The Hobbit's an easier read, frankly. Oh, yeah. And I, I remember when I first read Lord of the Rings at nine, I almost didn't finish it. I remember like I was going through and I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. So my mom was a high school teacher. One of her her colleagues, a fellow teacher, she was, you know, an English teacher. You know, she gave it to me like over the summer and I was reading it and we would get together periodically. She goes, hey, how's it going? And I, I had not gotten that far in it. And I kind of felt bad. I'm like, oh, it's okay, you know. And I felt like I need to get back on it and kind of read it and power through it. You know, that first half of the fellowship was kind of hard for me. But then once I kind of got, to, you know, you know once you hit Moria, once you hit Moria, it starts really kicking. Yeah, and Helm's Deep, I'm like, what is going on? I was just completely just enthralled. And then I just raced to the end, you know. It was my first experience with a story that picked up kind of slowly in the beginning. Yeah. And it was my first experience with a multi-volume story. It just, everything else I had read had been a small single installment kind of thing, you know? This is, I was nine years old. This is in the time between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. So I wasn't even used to the whole, like, a major moment, and then you got to stop and wait for resolution. So I'm impressed you made it through that young. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of it went past me, and I came back to it again near the end of high school. So I can read it again, because I'm like, I was like, I'll be able to appreciate a lot more. I cover a lot of ground since then. And it was a totally different reading experience for me. And then I read it again after I graduated from college a few years and again, a totally different reading experience for me. And then I read it again right before the Peter Jackson movies came out. Totally different experience for me. Like, and it's a, one of the reasons why I don't read it as often as I think as you do, Chris, is because I keep thinking, you know, every time I read it, I feel like I'm coming out of a cocoon. It's, it's revealing something about myself as I'm getting older. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, am I at that point where I should read Lord of the Rings again? Like, have I hit that point? You know, I think like next year I'll turn 50. I'll probably read it then, you know, to sort of see what kind of, what do I take away from it this time that's different from all the other times, you know? You'll start to identify with uh, Elrond more than anybody else. And, and what I find <laughs> fascinating is the, and I mean that really, that great literature is a, is a mirror and it tells us more about ourselves 
than the the stage that we're at and the world that we inhabit than it does uh, anything else. And, you know, like you guys, I mean, I started, I picked it up, I think I was in fifth grade or sixth grade or something like that the first time I tried to read it. And I found the, the experience of the hobbits in the Shire so punishingly dull. You know, oh, yeah. it's just, it's so brutal to get through. And I think, yeah, Moria, I think once they get to the Council of Elrond is when things start to pick up for me. And it's like, oh, here's Bilbo again. Like, okay, like I can, I can find this thread and I can move on. The stuff with Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites and even the stuff at Bree is just like, by the time you meet Strider, you're like ready to tap out if you're younger than high school. My kids are 10 and 12 and we've listened to the audiobooks together on long drives. And I think that that makes it more accessible for them. They've already seen the movies, so they know the plot. And now I find it's easier for them to access the prose, having experienced the, the arc of the narrative. And now to say, okay, you know how the general thing operates. Now you can get into some of the, the granularity of the, the written prose um, uh, as we go along. And to your point, Tom, the, the moment of truth that you talk about, one of the things that I dislike about, and the movies, Peter Jackson's movies, as bad as they are for The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings are fantastic. But there are some choices that he makes that are markedly different than the text and not just oh, yes. his, And that's one. And that's one where he eviscerates the agency of Aragorn in the films. And that as much as for me, Aragorn is a, is a character who is as much there to further the story as to be his own character. In the books, it's an important moment for Aragorn at that moment, as much as you talk about Frodo makes this choice to tap out, Aragorn makes the choice to let him. And Aragorn makes this incredibly important choice in that moment. Yeah. And in the movies, he sort of doesn't know. He's like, oh, I don't know, I guess we'll go this way. Whereas in the books, he, he figures it out because Aragorn's yeah. a smart guy and, he, and he's like, oh, look, I see these tracks and I, I know exactly what happened. Dude's 85. He's been around the block. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's doing that for God's sake. And, and this guy, he figures it out and he says, my destiny is no longer in that direction. My destiny lies somewhere else. And it's, it's a choice rather than the absence of choice that the narrative pushes onto him. And I see Chris blowing me kisses because he's been waiting yes. his whole life to hear somebody yes, say that. Yes, yes, yes. And, and this is one where, to me, Peter Jackson does a disservice to the character of Aragorn yeah. and a disservice to the narrative. But he, he does. He does a number of disservices to Aragorn, in my opinion. But, well, I don't think Aragorn is that interesting of a character, to be perfectly honest. Um, I find him to be, even in, in the fairness, books. Look, the first three Rangers I played in D&D were all straight riffs off Aragorn. So, I mean, he's <laughs> got, there's were. something going on there. Everybody's striding somewhere. The whole Ranger yeah. class is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I once, I remember vividly that um, I knew a, a middle school English teacher who said, you know, Tolkien's terrible. It's derivative. I said, you understand that. Of What? Well, I said, what did she say? I'm trying to remember the phrasing that she said. She said, it's, it's just, it's like everything else. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Everything else is like him. You know, he's the one that, that sort of stitched it all together and everything is, there's, there's derivative and then there's what things are driving from. And he sort of modernized so much old English mythos and everything else. But all that being said, Aragorn is such a cardboard cutout sometimes that here Peter Jackson takes the one time that the guy actually comes into his own and he neuters it. I found that to be a very interesting cinematic choice. I just want to say you are so right about Aragorn and the way that, that Jackson takes his agency away from him. I love the way you phrased that. That is absolutely correct. Now, I love Aragorn as a character, personally. But I mean, there's nothing in these books I don't love, honestly. <laughs> you know, exactly. I'm, just, I'm just too attached. Yeah. I, I think there's nothing objective or 
or or even critical about my love at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a fanboy. Yeah. So speaking of fanboy, you know, moments, you know, Tom, I'm still so fascinated by, by the journey your kids have taken through this. I've gotten to talk with their kids and they're super awesome. Even, even though that was a big moment for them, was that kind of like their moment of truth in the story as well? Or was there like another moment you picked up, like really rang loudly with them? Well, I think like when that ended up resolving itself was more like a moment of truth. This, this was a thing I saw like a lot of conviction behind what Frodo was doing and they just didn't see it. Kids these days... I think, you know, the, the way that they're educated and the way that they approach things, and this is a parenting thing, and this is what they learn in school too, that collaboration is just a core value. And when the team falls apart, you just have no hope. So that was kind of like a moment for them. Where they really saw the story going off the rails. And then- That is good in D&D terms. <laughs> well, it's like, never split the party yeah, right. <laughs> but, but, but if you're a reader from the latchkey generation though you're like man i do everything on my own of course yeah, i'm gonna, like I'm it, gonna hook it on my own Why forget not? these guys you know boromir wants to act like he's possessed by the ring yeah. let him goodbye see ya you know well, i mean you're also talking about a moment in which the story bifurcates right and you get the frodo sam and Gollum sort of becomes a psychological thriller and then yeah. you have a more traditional fantasy experience you have almost a Mallory experience on the the Rohan and Gondor side. And I find that on rereads or re-listens that the Sam and Frodo, it's like the last Harry Potter book. I'm like, would something freaking happen already? Versus the the (laughs) stuff that's going on with, you know, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. And that I find is in a lot of ways, the true narrative versus you know, Frodo in the ring, it's, yeah, I, I find it somnambulant. Well, you know, I will say, though, that in the movie, uh, I think, you know, my middle kid, Thomas, you know, who who is probably the bigger of the D&D geeks in my three kids, he saw, I think, a moment of truth, you know, when um, he saw Sam get saved from drowning, you know, like Frodo's pulling away in the boat, Sam's going to go out there and get him, whether he dies trying, you know, like, that was a big moment, I think, for him seeing those two come together, I think was like a moment of sweetness that I could see, you know, sitting on the couch with the guy, it affected him. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> he's yeah. a sensitive kid. He's like, he's like me yeah. at that age. And yeah. even now, you, you know, he's, uh, you, you see it affect him in, in that way. And you're like, okay, cool. You want to talk about robbing of agency though. I mean, talk about the Sam and Frodo storyline that with Shelob when you get up to that point and Jackson does it again where in the books, Sam's faith is tested and his faith comes through. He doesn't know that Frodo's alive. He follows him after he thinks Frodo's dead. Yeah. Whereas in the <laughs> movies, he, he says, oh, no, he sees that he's alive and follows him. And it's like he doesn't test his faith in the same way. He doesn't test that friendship in the same way. And I'm with, I'm with you, Tom, that the, the redeeming value of the Sam and Frodo narrative is that, that friendship, that it makes it so that you're, you know, you're testing that bond and they, they come through. And the movie saps some of the, the vigor away from that at some very A lot of it. Yeah. Before we get to that, though, you know, Joe, you know, what, is, what is your moment of truth? I know you take this as seriously as Chris does. I know you think very deeply about this thing. Well, I'll take you actually a little bit earlier than um, sort of in between, actually, between Chris's and Tom's. I'm going to take you to the Two Towers in Chapter 6, The King of the Golden Hall. And I'm going to take you to when Gandalf and uh, the Companions 3 show up at, at Edoras. And, you know, Gandalf has only recently come back as Gandalf the White, although he hasn't fully revealed that. And they show up at the Golden Hall and 
they're coming in, and clearly Grima has wormed his tongue into Theoden. And Gandalf knows that Rohan has to be roused, and he's going to use his powers to do that. And he comes in, and he realizes that Theoden has been sort of convinced to think of himself as a dotard. And what I love so much is in the books that that's underplayed, right? And so Gandalf comes in, you know, he plays the tricks with Hama at the door ward and says, let me keep my staff and all this fun stuff. But he gets in there and he starts arguing with Grima. And this is the point at which there's been nothing but bad luck for the good guys for a full book from halfway through fellowship to halfway through the, tw- the two towers. Things have been going bad. The fellowship is broken. The, the halflings are stolen. Uh, Mary and Pippin are stolen by the orcs and are spirited off. And our friends, you know, Aragorn and the others don't really still know what's happened. They've met Aemir and they aren't sure what's going on. They meet Gandalf and then they come down. And to me, this is the turning point. This is the first win the good guys have had in a very, very long time. When, when Gandalf breaks hold on Theoden and frees Theoden King. And in the books, it's not clear. We think that maybe he's just been talked into it by Grima. The movies make it explicit that this is a contest of wills between Gandalf and Saruman. I'll actually give a little bit of credit to Jackson's vision. In the movies, it is explicit that Gandalf is now more powerful than Saruman. The books don't go into detail on this. The books undersell this a little bit. And it's more of a striving between Gandalf and Wormtongue in the, in the book. But in the movies, they show it. They show Christopher Lee and, and Sir Ian McKellen. They show them almost battling uh, to free yeah. Theoden, which is the first chink in that armor, right? That's the first crack in Saruman and Sauron's plot to take over Middle-earth. And, and I've loved it so much my whole life, even before the movie version, and I love that the movie does this right, when Gandalf says, and I'll, and I'll read it here, when he says, you know, I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with the serving man until the lightning falls. And I've always loved that, that. Gandalf isn't taking it anymore. This guy fought the Balrog for a mile and a half down into the roots of the earth and came back struck naked on the mountain and figured it out, and he's Gandalf the White now, and dude ain't playing no more. We now know that Gandalf is in his great battle. He is in his moment. And Gandalf has always been my favorite. And I think that starts with the fact that the Hobbit movies were where I uh, had my entry into these. And, and Gandalf was so awesome in, the, in that film. And the books have always made, to me, Gandalf more central than Aragorn or Frodo or anyone else. Gandalf has always been my guy. And this, to me, is Gandalf's moment. Forget the coming back to you on the turning of the tide. Forget the rest of it. This is when Gandalf raises his staff and says, I'm the biggest, baddest MFR in Middle-earth, and this is my great business. And he frees Theoden, and everybody else looks at him and goes, we got a shot in this thing. And uh, that, to me, is the moment of truth for me in the entire cycle. It has always spoken to me as a reader. Well, you know, the thing with Gandalf is, as I made my long, slow transit through my first reading of the book, and, which was kind of concurrent with when I first saw the, the Ralph Bakshi adaptation as well, by the way. Mm. Rotoscope, baby. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But it was also for me, though, the first time I ever saw a character die and come back again. You know, I remember seeing him, you know, you know he, he went off the bridge. Wait a minute, he's, he's the most powerful guy. Like, how can you rob us of him? You know, it was, and like, I had the quite, first book. In the first book, like, I hadn't quite, <laughs> it hadn't quite sunk into me. The mentor always exits, right? I mean, that, that's part of the heroic journey. But as a young kid, I just wasn't ready for, for that again. So seeing Gandalf depart was really hard and really left me with a deep sense of kind of gloom and uncertainty 
and seeing him come back was such a welcome thing, you know, and seeing him come back and like, you know, really start to, to shake things up, as you mentioned, Joe, it was an exultant moment. I remember reading it. it was just, I was so excited just to see Gandalf do his thing and just, you know, Gandalf's going to Gandalf. And he just, <laughs> and he, and he just kept doing it and kept doing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think he's like my, you know, I want him to be my dad. I mean, he's just the best. <laughs> he is the party wizard. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, he, he's fantastic, you know. He's really, really, really cool. He can come back, and then that sets you up for a lifetime of reading Marvel comics. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's no Jean Grey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that, like, when you have stories where characters come back, it has to mean something, right? Yeah, you, you have to have that sense that you have to make sure that the readers understand that there really are stakes here, and that the stakes are serious, and they're for real, and that people aren't just going to come and go arbitrarily. Like, it means something for them to go. It means something more for them to come back. And you know, that notion with Gandalf that there was still unfinished business to be done, that these guys weren't just heroes with funny magical hats and stuffs. Like, Gandalf descended for something different than, than Aragorn or, or Frodo or Legolas or Gimli. And you get the sense that, you know, there were greater, deeper powers at work here. And as a, as a young kid, I didn't take any kind of, you know, deeper allegory. I was, I was like, well, Gandalf's back. I'm so, so glad. <laughs> the funny thing is... For the rest of the books, I read kind of almost through my fingers for fear that we're going to lose Gandalf again. Like I got one do-over with Gandalf and I'm probably going to lose him now again. And, and you do. Was, yeah, you know, but like this detention was was almost more than my little heart could take. I mean, I was really, <laughs> I mean, I was so afraid I was going to lose him. And I'm like, we got one person to come back. We could lose anybody else and they're not going to come back. And it was such a searing experience for me of just a story with narrative consequence, even though ironically the experience was of a character coming back right for me it turned a corner like okay this means it reminded me people come and go so anybody else can exit now and i just i had no idea how it was going to end it just kept me on the edge of my seat as a young reader this never really left me i think as i read and take another yeah stories it's it's, that's made a bit of impression upon me i think as a a uh, lover of stories yeah not, not only was this before comics became a realm where people die and then live and then die and then live at infinitum we i mean up to that point until you reach the appendices in fact you don't have any notion that gandalf's not just another dude you know he's just just a man who knows some spells and has spell slots, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, he's, a, he's only got a D4 hit die, man. He, right? He's not that sturdy. Yeah. <laughs> but he has a robe. Yeah, he's got armor class 10, D4 hit dice, carries a staff, not even a dagger as backup. I mean, the guy is just asking for it, you know? <laughs> That's why he ends up with a ranger. Yeah, apparently the only thing you can cast is a light spell, no magic missile, okay? No, right. No feather fall, clearly. You know, it's like... <laughs> Fireworks? What's this bullshit? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it is interesting that, you know, there's two pieces to, to Bill's point. When we talk about, you know, Gandalf coming back, I think that ruined all of us. I literally spent a good book and a half of the Song of Ice and Fire expecting Ned to come back because of what Tolkien did. And, you know, the, the expectation that was set that when good guys fall, well, we'll see him again. He'll come back and he'll be Ned the White. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, whatever, something, you know, we're going to make that thing work out. But yeah. <laughs> for me, you know, gray and white Gandalf, I mean, the, the older I get and as I, as I read these, when Gandalf comes back, he's not smoking the halfling's weed anymore. He's not setting fireworks. He's not having a good time. Like, even the way he treats the hobbits changes his relationship with Merry and Pippin is different than it was before he fell. He's, he's, he's much more serious. He's, 
he's Old Testament instead of New Testament Gandalf in a lot of ways. Oh, he's still kind, though. He's, he's kind, kind, but but he is focused in a way that he wasn't before. That's true, yes. I and totally it is brought into sharp, because he even, I think, and I can't place my finger on it, he says at one time, I'm only here for a short time. Yes. Like, he, that, he makes that, it explicit. That was, in fact, when, when he reappeared. He I've says, I'm here for a few minutes. For a short time. Yeah. Yeah. For a few, I've been sent back to you for a short time. And he makes that clear that the clock's ticking. And that lends a narrative urgency to the text that was missing for me in Fellowship, which is a languid pace. Two Towers starts to pick up, and now we're off and we're running. And Gandalf even tells us, start your engines, gentlemen. We're ready to roll. Yeah. Bill, <laughs> what is your moment of truth? <laughs> So my moment of truth, I'm actually going to pull it from the Jackson adaptations, believe, believe it or not. One of the things I love most about Lord of the Rings for me, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm out, I'm out. Philistine, when you read everything in pop-up books, do you? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, no, but for me, the Lord of the Rings, this thing where I've never thought of just as a literary experience, it's, it's always been concurrent with other adaptations that, that really made just a massive impact on me as well. And I, I actually have like very, very specific memories of how I took in some of the other adaptations of it. So for a while, when you're a kid, if you wanted an animated adaptation of this whole thing, you know, you had The Hobbit, you had Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, which only goes through partially through Two Towers, and then you have the, the Franken-Bass Return of the King. So you had this chunk missing, right? I, I saw that right around, you know, the same time I was like at that point in the story and just, you know, was, was taken by just, I mean, Bakshi's version of it is so deep and gloomy and so just trippy and weird as a young kid it was kind of overwhelming to me and, and kind of kind of scared me to be honest with you I was a little the orcs are frankly terrifying yeah, yeah it was it was pretty it was pretty scary and terrifying but I remember you know at some time later we were on vacation and I was just up really late at night one time just in, in, in the hotel room just watching you know HBO or whatever and uh, Lord of the Rings is on and I remember just like just watching it in a totally darkened room in the middle of the night and it was just this really weird sense of just just how dark it all was you know and it, it really made an impact on me some years later again another you know I'm kind of a night owl I remember one time I was staying over somebody else's house and I couldn't get to sleep and they had these the, they made these adaptations of books like on like little records and I remember I had the Hobbit yeah okay so these guys had the Hobbit the Bass Hobbit they, they had the Hobbit and then they had Return of the King but not not the stuff in the middle right so I guess it was the Rankin Bass adaptations of the of the, the Hobbit and Return of the King. I remember it was like my first all nighter because I remember I just kept listening to The Hobbit and Return of the King and Hobbit and Return of the King. Just just I just kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I just remember that so vividly. Which brings me to the Jackson movies because you know I remember there were a lot of people who were like, oh, I'm not really sure about these things, that sort of thing. And and there and there have been a lot of you know criticisms aimed at the movies for not just for being different from the books, but the choices that were made were not really in line with perhaps the best features of the source material. And that's all fair. When you look at like the battle in the Mines of Moria, that, that whole description is 1,200 words or something like that. But on, on screen, it's like a nine-minute action extravaganza. Like it's just so much CGI and so much battle and so much action, so much you gotta move video games. It, yeah, it's so much kinetic energy. It lends a different feel to what these stories are supposed to do. I mean, the battles are big, but it's about the moments in between the battles also. And, and movies sometimes get away from that. But the, for me, the moment of truth that really knocks me out and one of my favorite aspects of my entire experience with the Lord of the Rings. It's from the Fellowship of the Ring. It's from that moment during that council in Rivendell, where by the time I saw the movies, I had read the novels, I read the books again. And as an adult, one of the things I really came to appreciate as I got older were, were the Hobbits. 
right? When I was a kid, it's like, well, the hobbits are like, they're not cool. They're not the ones swinging the swords, really. They're getting, they're getting kidnapped. They're, they're, they're these small people. They're weak. I don't get them. But as I got older, I'm like, no, the hobbits have got it going on. I mean, they've got second breakfast. I mean, they, they garden for, you know, all the time. They live in this beautiful little part of the world that's beyond trouble. I grew to appreciate that the Shire wasn't just the starting level of this game, right? It was this green and beautiful place that deserves to be be saved and deserves to be preserved you know even if the whole rest of the world is harsh and, and troubled this this the shire is kind of apart from all that and it, it was kind of this little pure little place that if nothing else is at stake surely this place is you know and, and it deserves to be defended i kind of had that in mind when i was watching the movies and so we get to the council of rivendell and you know they're all sitting there talking about you know what are they going to do with the ring you know and, and you know what are we going to do and you have that great you know you know boromir launches a million memes from like you know you know, no one simply just walks into mordor you know and that sort of stuff and then gimli and legolas start fighting and very quickly all just you just swiftly, swiftly the scene descends into chaos right and everybody's just fighting and arguing with each other and also, you know, and Gandalf's watching and, and like his face kind of falls, he realizes like nobody's going to find common cause here. We can't pull this together. And even he gets swept up in the argument. Even Gandalf gets swept up in the argument. And there's this great shot where suddenly you see the fire of Sauron kind of spread across the reflection of the ring. This is what, I mean, I saw it and it chilled me. This is what Sauron wants. You know, Sauron is laughing at our heroes and he's, laughing, and he's laughing at us and anybody who was on the right side of something and couldn't pull their act together to, to unify against common cause. And it was this really dark, harsh moments. Like it's just things felt so already so lost. Even though I knew how the story was going to end, I felt so lost. And that's when in all this clamor, Frodo steps forth and he says, I'll take the ring. And he says it so, he's so quiet and he's so little that the only one who hears him is Gandalf, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's and, when his face falls. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it's the moment. Yeah. This is a moment where I love it because you you really could have only captured this in the screen adaptation versus the novel, but because because yes. Ian McKellen is such a master. And there's this moment where his face transforms, and he has two reactions at once. And one is this profound sense of relief that the person who was most worthy of this quest, the one person who needed to say yes, has said yes. So hope is rekindled. But at the same time, he knows what this will do to Frodo. He knows that Frodo does not know what he's getting into. That, that knows, is a look of pity. And so, and yeah, and it's just, his heart is breaking at the same time for his friend, even though he's so grateful for it. And tears come to my eyes when I think of it, when I see that, because Gandalf couldn't, he couldn't stop it. He had to let it happen. He couldn't tell Frodo to do it. You know, Frodo had to do it on his own. You know, this, this unique combination of things had to come together in just that moment for everything to be saved, right? For the whole thing to even start. Like, like catastrophe the, yeah and and that's one of the things where it comes so well together and it's just such a beautiful moment and i think you know for me you know here are these people who you know they had every reason to opt out or go this isn't about me i don't understand this you know hobbit i don't know why i should be involved why me and no like frodo's stepped up and he has to say it again that's the other thing he had he says it once and Gandalf hears him and, and he goes i'll take the ring and that's when the council stops they kind of look and they're all sort of struck dumb and he's basically saying i'll do it on my own i could use help but he doesn't actually say who's going to help me i just have to go on my own and, and that's when you see samwise step up and you know samwise will be there every step of the way and all these great heroes who have all the outer trappings of heroism you know all the strength and the armor and all that sort of stuff they have to be shown by these two little people what it means to really be a hero and then they make it easy for them to do the right thing and that moment just blows me to smithereens. Well, and Gandalf says, he says, this is the hour of the Shire folk, right? I mean, he, is, he's, he said that, he knows. 
And that's why I find, I, I agree with you completely, Bill. I find that moment when he knows the only way that this goes is for the hobbits who can withstand the ring's seduction better than men or dwarves or elves or wizards. And he, and he needs a hobbit. And that's why he's been studying the hobbits all this time. He knows that that's the only way that this ends well. And he, like you said, he knows the cost that it's going to have because he's fallen in love with these people and their land. And it's not just his fondness for the halflings weed. He's, he's fallen in love with their way of life and, and who they are as people. And he knows that the only way to save them is to sacrifice some of them. And, and like you said, it breaks his heart. And it's at that moment of knowing that your machinations are coming to fruition. It's going to have the cost that you know it does. And so, yes, that moment of heroism from Frodo and that moment of just unvarnished, pure sadness from Gandalf, they mix together to make a really um, a moment of real strong pathos. I will add that that is possibly my favorite moment in the films as well because it made it clear for the first time that the ring is a character and yes. i don't think that that is something that the books do at all the movies did it very well it does say the ring is trying to be found it's trying to be it does it does grant yeah, some it, literary it, it, agency. It, it gives it some agency you don't see it directly acting ever and and there in that film scene you see it it's just like yes yes fight my pretties yeah <laughs> yeah no the thing for that scene also for me is that and i don't this just might be my own personal headcanon but what it does for me is it sets up a moment at the end of the return of the king it's at that point in that movie when we're having like you know 14 different epilogues you know and just kind of keeps going keeps going but there's a great moment at, at aragorn's coronation and they're all they're all there and, and no one kneels to you. Yeah, I was going to kneel, and he's like, "You kneel to no one." Yeah. And, and the way he delivers that is so that gives me shivers because for me, Aragorn. For me, I always connect it back to the moment when Frodo steps forth. He, you know, Aragorn remembers. He remembers everything, but he remembers definitely that moment when even Aragorn was arguing. You know, and it took Frodo to to bring everybody together. And like, if it weren't for he knows, if it weren't for them, none of this would have happened. And he says it in front of everybody. And I just love that payoff. For me, that was like a long, a long tail payoff. And he doesn't say, I remember when you were at the council, he just says, you, you bow to no one. And there are many other reasons throughout the whole course of story why that the hobbits prove their valor and their worth and their, their moral fiber that could have spurred Aragorn to say such a thing. And I know he refers to the kind of their collective heroism, you know, everything, the many things they've done over the course of the story. But for me, it really comes back to that one moment where, you know, the strength of the hobbits first presents themselves and in such a way, in a way that nobody else ever expected. And I just, I just love it so much. It contrasts so well too with, you know, how they're treated like throughout the rest of the story. I mean, you see them. They're halflings. You know, yeah. They're, they're halflings. You know, they, they goof off a little bit. They're, uh, they're made fun of throughout the, the whole thing. And it's just like, that contrast I think drives things in, in, in a really in a way that hits home for, for me in particular. You know, I mentioned, you know, not getting along with the other kids back then. It's definitely in I think in you look down on the weakest of us and they actually turn out to be the strongest of us, that kind of thing. It really resonated with me because yeah, yeah, you do see these hobbits as uh you know, something special where, you know, initially when you start reading, you know, I wanted to kind of write them off. I'm like, these are these you know, little things with hairy feet. And yeah, they're not swinging the swords. They're not, you know, doing all the things you traditionally think of as heroic. Yet they turn out to 
be the biggest heroes in the story. In the novels, I believe that this all happens at the Kermalan fields after the, the ring is destroyed. So before they get back to Gondor and therefore before the coronation. But Aragorn puts Frodo and Sam on his throne. Hmm. And everybody like sings songs to them. And it's, oh, oh I, I, cry, I cry so hard. Chris, Chris is having a fit. I'm makes, verklempt. I know, it makes you sprain your tear ducts. Yeah, Chris is having the vapors. But yeah. the, um, Tolkien isn't hiding any of this. I mean, he's told us in The Hobbit. Every time that Bilbo has to bail out the doofy dwarves. And that when the men and the elves and the dwarves, there's a great scene in the Rankin Bass animated version where uh, Bard and Thranduil and the leader of the dwarves. Oh, Thorin. Thorin, thank you. So they're, they're like standing around when the goblins show up and they're like, hey, why don't we be buddies? Like they've been fighting and they've they realized that their greater strength lies together. But Bilbo is the one that tries to, to make all of that happen. He's the one negotiating behind the scenes. He's made it clear that the hobbits are the clear seeing characters. The hobbits are the ones that value good fellowship and good, good food and good drink and that they have their values in the right place. As Thorin explicitly says at his death. Tolkien, who clearly valued many of the same things as you see pictures of him as he ages for him, like he's essentially saying like, here are the, the British people, right? As the world argues and the world fails and evil strikes those of us that like to have our pipe and drink our beer are going to save the rest of you because we might not be the biggest nation. We may be the smallest, but our heart is strong. It's, and he was in Churchill's time, you know, the, the, the roar of the lion and all this stuff. And so I think there's a lot of that to it. But, but he's made it clear through The Hobbit that these halflings are the heroes of the story. And even as we go on through, through and he makes fun of them and... and it's, it's pretty clear that they're the ones that are the, the good guys throughout yeah. the narrative. Yeah. Sam yeah. in particular. Sam is the hero of the story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Rudy. Rudy. Yeah. Potatoes. That's one of those things I didn't appreciate a whole lot the first couple of times I went through the story was the role of Sam and just how he was such a stalwart hero and, and made so much of it happen. He helped drive my level with the Hobbits really were really all about. And I think one of the things that kind of really resounds with me that scene i mentioned before but it's also just you know just the hobbit's role in the whole war of the rings both in the page and on the screen you know it's that they're not just physically small i mean when you're in a, a problem that big no matter who you are that scene can make you feel to be small you were made to feel like you were a tiny part in something so big that one possible person can't really move the lever at all. You know, you just can't. That's the, the corrosion of agency with something that massive and that calamitous and something like a war, you know, is that you feel like, what can I do but be swept up in this and be ground to dust in the gears of this thing so much bigger than me? Now, speaking of Peter Jackson, I recently saw They Will Not Grow Old, which is his World War One documentary in which he uses a lot of archival footage, but he speeds it up because that old footage runs at a weird frame rate. So people are moving like normal people would and he colorized it and it really kind of brought them to life and the whole thing is narrated just by audio recordings of world war one veterans as they share their experience and british veterans as they, as they spoke of what they did you know and, and you think about tolkien and how he was in that war and just how the nature of of any war but that war in particular it just makes you feel so tiny and makes you feel so small and where can heroism bloom when you feel that tiny when you feel that small I really get a sense of that in Lord of the Rings with the Hobbits is that, you know, they are small in size, they're small in role, they are initially small in agency and have every reason to just disappear and just vanish 
and yet they don't. They are the hardiest sprouts in the entire field. It's just so, so amazing. And I think, you know, when you see them in the book, obviously, this is one of the things, one of the things that I know Christopher Lee was really not happy with is how, you know, the, the scouring of the Shire was excised from the film adaptation. But I just love it so much when, you know, our hobbits come home and the hobbits who are back in the Shire, like, hey, look, uh, there's a new boss here. You know, you really can't come in here. And I actually laughed out loud the last time I read it because <laughs> I hear hobbits, they're physically taller than they used to be, right? Like they're actually physically yeah. than they used to be, you know, and they well, come back. Well, that's what an entwash will do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they just, they walk in, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's not happening. And they just walk right past, <laughs> right past the, the border guard at the Shire. Like, yeah, well, we're just going to take care of things. And they just come in and in pretty short order, honestly, just, just you know, just clean house, right? They're just like, we've seen some things and they just take care of business. And it's so great the way it's all done. And then all the other hobbits realize, you know, they have this great strength too. And so it's this wonderful thing where they bring home this valor they discovered about themselves. And you realize that no matter whatever happens else in Middle Earth, the Shire will never fall. But that's, that goes right back to Tolkien's experience, right? Coming back from the war and that British generation that survived, or you can think about the American post-World War II generation and what they did in the, you know, in the 50s and into the 60s and the sense of like, there's nothing we can't do after yeah. what we've survived. And there's that great line when they come in, and I, I forget who the sheriff is at the at the door, and he says, you know, when they start going in, he says, well, don't forget I've arrested you. And <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's either Mary or Pippin who says, I won't forget, though I may forgive you. Yes, and yes. I love, I've always loved that line because it is so freaking dismissive. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's like, it's this line of like, like are you serious right now with this? Yeah. Like with your little staff, are you really going to mess with me? They're wearing the... You know, he the, might the, as well the, say the devices, not, you know, <laughs> yeah, right? they're wearing exactly. the devices of Gondor and Rohan. These yeah. guys are like soldiers, right? They've been yeah. around. Oh, yeah. He's um, like, taken under advisement. You know, love chump sucker. I'm walking in. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay, cool. You've arrested me. Let's go. Yeah. And, to, uh, and, then, and then makes them walk behind as they yeah, exactly, ride the front. Exactly, exactly. You've arrested me. Got it. Copy that. I'm on board. Yeah. It's kind of like when we go out with our wives and they say, why don't you decide what we eat? But I, I wanted to go back to what, what Bill had talked about, Sam because I, I, I vacillate on Sam as to, as to how I feel about him. And to me, Sam's moment, um, and, and this actually comes from the films, the scene with the Lembus bread with Gollum. Oh, I hate it. When he frames Sam. It's so awful. It's so upsetting. Because it is so upsetting. Because Gollum has done exactly what he wants to do, and, Fro and, he, and he manipulates Frodo so completely. <sighs> And Sam is so heartbroken. And Frodo says, like, he kicks him like a dog, right? He kicks him like a loyal dog and says, go, go, get out of here, get out of here. It's like Arya and Nymeria, you know what I mean? He said, go, get out of here. Sam does, but then he stops. You want to talk about moments of truth. Sam says, you know what? Even though he wants me to leave, I'm not going to do it. I won't leave him. I won't betray him. That's the moment that turns me around on Sam. Yeah. And, yeah. and it has me feel like, well, you know what? These hobbits have a way of breaking things down to their most fundamental level. And at their most basic level, they are creatures of loyalty. They are creatures of friendship. And they do not, do not abandon one another. And that, I think, leaks out into the rest of the fellowship and the rest of the story. To the point where when you see when the fellowship breaks and Aragorn and, and Gimli and Legolas kind of throw their hands up on the shores of Anduin and they say, what do we do? They say, let's go save our friends. That's because of who the hobbits are and how they've led them to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so one thing I find interesting about all this is that Tolkien was, 
in the neighborhood of 57 years old when he finally finished this epic work of his. And he was something like 63 before it was you know, fully published. It was almost at what we consider to be retirement age before his book even really hit the market. And, and during that time, he was broadly considered to be really not such a great linguistic scholar either. I mean, the guy was too divided between his academic career and his literary one, didn't publish enough on either one to really be seen as a huge success. But he persevered with his vision and he published a work that now many of us can't imagine a world without. And, you know, it really took Tolkien his entire adult life to write The Lord of the Rings. And the results, I think, surely benefit from it. But I think it's important, you know, for creatives in particular, you know, writers, artists, musicians, anybody who pursues a, a creative endeavor, to take heart from Tolkien's arc. Because you don't have to be a wonderkind. You don't have to publish your life's work at 20, 30, 40, or even 50 or 60. You know, your path is your own. And the important thing is to have the courage to walk it wherever it leads. You know, the road, as a certain old hobbit would be quick to remind us, goes ever on. Uh, so Chris, Joe, Tom, thank you very much for dropping in today. And thanks to everyone else for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share. And we will see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.